this special teaching on uh, about the tenth of Tevet that's coming up in just a couple of days, and I've been invited to share about this uh, the special fast that the Bible refers to uh, because it's a, a kind of an obscure event, uh, one that many people, uh, including Messianic believers, are unaware of uh, and don't know much about. And it was an education for me when I was asked to prepare a teaching. Um, so the, the, the verse I want to start with is 2 Kings 25.1, and it says, Now it came about in the ninth year of his reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month. The tenth month is Tevet, and the tenth day of Tevet is going to be in two days, on Tuesday, uh, December the 14th. And uh, today is December the 12th, the 8th of Tevet. And so I'm preparing this teaching so you can watch it in preparation for the fast day and our, our international day of prayer that will be taking place this coming Tuesday on the 10th of Tevet. But anyways, on the 10th day of the 10th month, the 10th of Tevet, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, he and all his army against Jerusalem, camped against it, and built a siege wall all around it. So what marks this day as a fast day is that this is the day that Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem with his armies, a vast Babylonian army, surrounded Jerusalem and began the siege. This siege would eventually lead to the destruction of the gates and walls, and then the destruction of the temple itself, and then the capturing of the Jewish people and taking them back to Babylon for a period of 70 years of exile. Uh, during this time, Daniel and his three friends were taken from Israel and taken to Babylon. You can read about his story in the book of Daniel. And these four fast days that we have been observing this year, if you've been following these days of prayer that uh, friends in South Africa in conjunction with Beth Takun have been setting up and, and observing, uh, we started with the 17th of Tammuz, and then we did a day of prayer on the 9th of Av, and then the 3rd of Tishrei, and then coming up the 10th of Tevet. Now, these four fast days all have to do with the destruction of Jerusalem and of Solomon's temple in about 300 B.C. And Zechariah refers to them, the list of these four fasts. He, in Zechariah 8.19, he refers to the fast of the fourth month, which would be the 17th of Tammuz, the fast of the fifth month, which is the 9th of Av. That's the day that Solomon's temple was actually destroyed. And coincidentally, it was also the day that Herod's temple was destroyed in 70 AD. And the fast of the seventh month, which is the third of Tishrei, and the fast of the tenth month, the tenth of Tevet. Now, when Zechariah lists these four fasts, he follows the calendrical order, the order in which they appear on the calendar. The fourth month, fifth month, seventh month, tenth month. But historically, if we want to follow the events that these fasts commemorate, we have to change the order. We have to take the tenth of Tevet and move it up to the top of the list so that the list looks like this. This is the chronological order of events. On the 10th of Tevet, 
I said the th- uh, third century, I meant the, the 400s BCE. And the 10th of Tefet in the year 423 BCE, Nebuchadnezzar begins the three-year siege of Jerusalem. So between this first event and the second, there is a period of three years. So three years later, on the 17th of Tammuz, Nebuchadnezzar's forces actually breach the city walls. They finally break through. What a horrible three years that must have been. The people in Jerusalem were trapped there. Uh, Food was running out. They had plenty of water, but food was running out. People were starving for three years. And they're completely surrounded by the Babylonian forces. But after three years, on the 17th of Tammuz, Nebuchadnezzar's forces finally breached the walls. Then only three weeks later, just three weeks, not three years this time, three weeks later on the 9th of Av, the temple is destroyed. And most all of us are very familiar with the Tisha B'Av, the 9th of Av, and we, we fast as we commemorate the loss of, the, of Solomon's temple, the destruction of Herod's temple, and many other horrible events in Jewish history occur on the 9th of Av. And then on the 3rd of Tishrei, we have the Zom Gedalia, the Fast of Gedalia, which uh, most people don't know much about. But you can read about uh, Gedalia and what happened with him and his assassination in Jeremiah chapters 39 and 40. But in a nutshell, uh, after Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, he takes the vast majority of the Jewish people into captivity in Babylon. They go to Babylon for 70 years. But he left a contingent of Jewish people in Jerusalem just to kind of maintain things. And he appointed a leader. That leader's name was Gedaliah. Well, the surrounding Ammonites, these Gentile enemies of Israel, um, their king decided he wanted to get rid of the Jews that were left. And um, he appointed a man named Ishmael, who was a friend of Gedalia's, to assassinate him. And Jehochanan came to Gedalia and warned him that this man Ishmael is going to come and he's going to kill you. He's been sent by the king of the Ammonites to come and assassinate you. And so Gedalia had a very clear warning. Jehochanan says, let me go deal with him. Let me take him out so that your life will be preserved. But Gedaliah, the son of Chicham, said to Jehochanan, the son of Choreach, do not do this thing, for you are telling a lie about Ishmael. How many times have people come to us, reliable people, to give us a warning about something that we need to take action on, and we treat them like they're lying because we don't like the message they say. You must learn never to recognize truth because it's good news and falsehood because it's bad. Because sometimes truth is bad news. And sometimes good news is actually wicked and is a lie. We need to discern the truth of something, whether that truth is pleasant or unpleasant. We need to be not like Gedalia. But we need to be people who are wise, people who are prudent and discerning, and we can recognize a true message from a false one. So, 
Going back to this, we notice that in Zechariah's order, the tenth of Tevet comes last on the list. But chronologically, it comes first on the list. And so the question comes up, why did Jerusalem have to be destroyed? Why did its temple have to be destroyed? Why did its people have to be taken into captivity? And if you want the answer to that question, read the book of Jeremiah. That's a very long answer, but Jeremiah takes the events leading up to this terrible event and also takes us on past it and looks into the future of the restoration. But the book of Jeremiah is all about the events that are commemorated by these four fasts. But we can also find a, a condensed version of the problems in Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles 36. And this describes the state, the spiritual state of the people of Israel, especially in Jerusalem, as, uh, as they fell away from God and God warned them and, and led up to this event of this captivity and all this destruction and death. And this is what it says, Second Chronicles 36, verses 14 to 16. Furthermore, all the officials of the priest and the people were very unfaithful. They were very unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they defiled the house of Adonai, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. Back in Leviticus 18, I think it's verse 19, there's a dire warning given. God gives this warning to Israel that if they, they follow the abominations, they drift from the Torah and begin to imitate the abominable deeds of the Canaanites that they're driving out, God says the land will spew you out as well. <clears throat> and yet the people gravitated back into doing these, these horrible things. Yet all the time, they were still showing outward honor to the temple giving mouth service to God, thinking that even though they're doing these other things in the dark, that because they're still attached to the temple, still doing some sacrifices, still uh, giving praise to God, that he would be okay with that. And unfortunately, I know people today, believers, at least they call themselves believers, and they attend the, the services of their, their faith community, may even be active in serving. They may talk about God and say, praise God for things and share prayer requests and show concern for things. And yet, in the darkness, there are other things they're involved in. But they think this outward thing, this outward performance, this act, this hypocrisy, will cover over the reality of where their hearts really are. That never worked. It didn't work then, and it doesn't work today. We are to be faithful. We have to show faithfulness. And in Scripture, whenever you see the word faith, do yourself a favor and put in the word faithfulness, because that is what faith really is in in Hebraic thought and in, in the scriptures. Because we know way too many who say, I have faith, I believe, but they're not faithful. And if a person is not faithful, they do not have faith. 
Real faith results in real action and real change of character, a change in life. And if the faith that you claim to have is not strong enough to change you, it's not faith at all. Faith must be faithfulness. And it's our faithfulness that God desires. And it's what we must work at developing and growing. So anyways, continuing on. Uh, They were very unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they defiled the house of Adonai, which he had sanctified in Jerusalem. And Adonai, the God of their father, sent word to them again and again by his messengers. He sent word to them again and again by his messengers, warning them. Because he had compassion on his people, even in the midst of their sin, of their abominations. He loved them. He had compassion on them. He was calling them back. He he sent his prophets to appeal to them. Because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they continually mocked. Continually mocked the messengers of God. They despised his words. And scoffed at his prophets. Until the wrath of Adonai arose against his people. Until there was no remedy. Psalm 1 says, Blesses the man who walks not in the way, walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the mocker, the scoffer. Walking in the counsel of the ungodly, then sitting in the way of sinners, and standing in the way of sinners, and then sitting in the seat of the scoffers. Walking, standing, and then sitting. And I always remember the words of um, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon. He commented on Psalm 1. He said, the seat of the scoffer may be very lofty, but it's very near the gates of hell. And I meet believers And it causes pain when I hear them scoffing at holy things. When they scoff at warnings about the culture we live in and about how it's becoming more depraved, especially among young people. I'm old enough to where I've been able to see over nearly 70 years of life how things have degraded. There have always been wicked people, but they were recognized by the majority as being wicked. But now I see wicked people being embraced by the majority as being normal, being okay, being acceptable. And um, and when I sometimes share these observations, observations that other old people like me have also seen, and the wise people that I respect, we sometimes get a little bit of scoffing from the younger generation because they think we're just old-fashioned, old fuddy-duddies, and maybe we are. But sometimes old-fashioned things are superior to new-fashioned. But we need to be careful. And I send this warning to my young brothers and sisters, don't scoff when older people warn you about the direction our culture is going. And I know most of you don't need a warning, because you see it as well yourselves. Now, we're going to come back to 2 Chronicles 36. We're going to pick up where we left off. But I want to jump for a moment to Jeremiah. To Jeremiah 26, 8 to 10. So I put this in brackets because we're going to come back to 2 Chronicles. But I want to take a look at this. 
God sent Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's a bad guy. And he caused horrible destruction and, and so much death, so much pain and suffering, and destroyed God's temple. But I want you to hear what Jeremiah says about this. Jeremiah 25, verses 8 to 10. Therefore, thus says Adonai of hosts, because you, the, the, the people living there, the Jewish people, uh, have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares Adonai, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. How could a wicked man be God's servant? Because pretty much every wicked person in some way is still a tool in God's hands. Because God is God. God is sovereign. And God will use foolish people, wicked people, lazy people, ignorant people, to be our teachers and to bring correction into our lives. Every individual you encounter in some way is a teacher sent by God. And we need to learn the lesson that each encounter in our lives teaches us. But here he takes this king, Nebuchadnezzar, who comes to destroy Jerusalem and destroy the temple, and God says, he's my servant. Nebuchadnezzar had no idea he was being used by God. He had no idea that he was God's servant. All he knew is that I need to go in there and and take care of some problems and uh, deal with these people in Jerusalem, and he did. But Jeremiah is letting us know that there's a bigger picture, and that this wicked king who comes as an enemy of Israel is actually a tool, a hammer in God's hand. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. So he's not only dealing with the Jewish people, but he's also doing with the inhabitants and all these surrounding nations like the Ammonites and others. He's the ones who have been a wicked influence to his people. So he's dealing with a lot of problems at one time and using Nebuchadnezzar as the instrument in his hand to accomplishment. So now let's go back to Second Chronicles and pick it up exactly where we left off, and we'll read about the actions of Nebuchadnezzar. Therefore he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, that's Nebuchadnezzar, who slew their young men with a sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or infirm. He gave them all into his hand, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand, and all the articles of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of Adonai, and the treasures of the king and of his officers. He brought them all to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its fortified buildings with fire and destroyed all its valuable articles. And those who had escaped from the sword he carried away to Babylon, and they were servants to him and to his sons until the rule of the king of Persia to fulfill the word of Adonai by the mouth of Jeremiah. Encapsulated in this paragraph are a number of things that um, conjure up images from other parts of the scriptures. I mentioned earlier that in this Babylonian exile, Daniel and his three friends were taken. 
And you can read about their adventures in Babylon. And Daniel lived to see the Babylonian Empire come to an end and the Persian Empire conquer it. And he continued to serve under the new Persian king, just as it refers to here that uh, uh, the Persians would then come and replace the Babylonians as the, the great world rulers. They destroyed Solomon's temple, but it wasn't a complete destruction. Some of the stones were still left, the ruins were left, and later, under Ezra and Nehemiah, a contingent of Jewish people would return from Babylon and begin to rebuild the walls and the streets and the temple of Jerusalem. And you can read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah. They got a lot of pushback, but they did accomplish the task. And also, I find it fasting with all this destruction. When Ezra and Nehemiah were restoring the temple, a Torah scroll was found. So Nebuchadnezzar's destruction was not utterly complete. God saw fit that one Torah scroll would survive there. And they found it. They built a platform. They called all the people and they read the Torah to all the people. And uh, there was a time of great, great repentance because of that. So even in the destruction, God had a seed there. He had planted that he preserved that would bear great fruit in years to come. I've taken it on as a project to, uh, to read through the Talmud. It takes seven years if you read a double-sided page per day. But uh, I'm trying to keep up. Not that I think all of us should read the Talmud. Uh, I find much of it kind of uh, mentally numbing, maybe because I'm just not that smart. But every once in a while, I come across something that is just a gold nugget. It's like you dig and dig and dig day after day, and every once in a while, you come to something that's like, yes, this is brilliant. You know, there are thousands of, uh, of rabbis whose comments are found in the, the Talmud. The Talmud is a vast collection of, of conversations and quotes from people over a period of centuries. And, uh, and in there, you find some things that... Uh, it's like, no, not so much, but you find other things that are so brilliant and wise. And one of the things that came across recently that really applies today is from the Babylonian Talmud to Anit, page 15a. And it talks about fast. And so I, I, I really paid attention because I knew I'd be preparing this teaching for today. And it talks about uh, prayers to be prayed on fast days. And when I came to this part, though, it really struck me. I want to share it with you. And if I, I encourage you to print out the notes. And on the last page of the notes, I have these six blessings for fast days that are listed on this page in the Talmud. And each of the six is based upon a biblical event. So let's just read through them. And I've given you the references so you can go back and, and read more detail. But it says, he who answered Abraham on Mount Moriah, he will answer you and hear the sound of your cry on this day. And these blessings are read at the end of the prayer, of each prayer for the fast day or at the end of the fast day. 
He who answered Abraham on Mount Moriah, he will answer you and hear the sound of your cry on this day. Blessed are you, Adonai, Redeemer of Israel. And you can read about what is being referenced here in Genesis 22 when when Abraham took his only begotten son Isaac up to Mount Moriah to offer him to God. And the second one, he who answered our forefathers at the Red Sea, he will answer you and hear the sound of your cry on this day. Blessed are you, Adonai, who remembers the forgotten. Number three, he who answered Joshua at Gilgal when they sounded the shofar in Jericho, he will answer you and hear the sound of your cry on this day. Blessed are you, Adonai, who hears the teruah. The teruah, that's the blast of the shofar. Number four, he who answered Samuel and Mizpah. Now, this is a little more obscure story. You can read about it in 1 Samuel 7. But there were enemies bearing down on Israel, coming to attack, and Samuel caused the people to gather at Mizpah. And while the armies are all, all um, kind of congregating and getting in formation to come and attack, here's Samuel offering a sacrifice. He's focused on what he's supposed to do. And the people are gathered there with him, and they're trying to watch what Samuel is doing. But I'm sure, you know, they have one ear listening and hearing the armies all around them. And as Samuel is offering this sacrifice, it says God sent a great noise, uh, probably thunder, something that was earth-shaking. And this so disconcerted the surrounding armies, and they became so filled with fear that they began to flee, and the Israelites chased them and conquered them. So that is how God answered Samuel in Mizpah. And he will answer you and hear the sound of your cry on this day. Blessed are you, Adonai, who hears cries. Number five, he who answered Elijah on Mount Carmel. And you all know that story, the showdown with the priest of Baal. He will answer you and hear the sound of your cry on this day. Blessed are you, Adonai, who hears prayer. And number six, he who answered Jonah from within the innards of the fish, he will answer you and hear the sound of your cry on this day. Blessed are you, Adonai, who answers in a time of trouble. These six blessings all follow the same pattern. But they call upon six events, and they refer to Adonai in a different way each time. They refer to God as the Redeemer of Israel, the one who remembers the forgotten, the one who hears the teruah, the blast of the shofar, who hears cries when we call out to him, who hears prayer, who answers in a time of trouble. And so what I do, want to do is encourage you on this fast day and on any fast days, any day you may choose just personally to fast because there's something weighing on your heart, something that has to do with maybe a family member or with a need in our nation or a need in your community, whatever it might be. I think these six blessings provide a roadmap. Um, a program 
four-hour fast. And you can take your fast and divide it into six sections. And in the first section, you begin to think of Genesis 22, verses 11 to 18, the story of Abraham taking his son. Taking his son, his, his beloved son, your son whom you love, Isaac, and take him up to a mountain there and offer him to me. And when I think about this, I have to think in my own life, what is the thing that I love more than anything else? The thing I love maybe as much as I love God. Am I willing to let go of that? This is something to ponder on a fast day. What are you willing to give up to him? Because anything you're not willing to give up to him, and it's a gift from him anyway, isn't it? If you're not willing to give up to God, then that thing has too much value in your life. It has too much. And it's become a bit of an idol. And Abraham was willing to take his only begotten son, Isaac, his promised son, and he's willing to offer him up to God because he loved God so much. The first time the word love appears in the Bible is in this story at Genesis 22. The love of a father for his son. And Abraham was willing to give his only begotten son to God out of love. And so we know that God gave his only begotten son because he so loved the world. What's the thing in your life you love so much you cannot imagine living without? Can you at least in your heart say, God, I recognize it's yours. And if you choose to take it, then it's yours. Because it was a gift from you to start with. That's something to ponder and consider in a fast. But you know what? God redeemed Israel. God is the redeemer of Israel. And why is that attached to this story of Abraham? Because it wasn't Abraham's son that he wanted. It was Abraham's heart. It was Abraham's heart. And to truly be redeemed... You need to have a redeemed heart. You need to have a heart that is totally given over to God. God wants to bring a complete and full redemption to us. But he can't give us a full redemption if there are things in our lives we're holding back. Those things need to be redeemed as well. They can only be redeemed if we give them over. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. And that means everything we have, everything we are, everything we own is included in that redemption price. We must be willing to transfer ownership of that to our Father in heaven. And you know what? Our heart is going to be where our treasures are. And if we lay up our treasures there and give them to God, they'll be preserved. They'll be preserved for us. Anyways, I'm getting too sidetracked. But take some time in your fast to then ponder the crossing of the Red Sea. Because the people probably thought, okay, God got us out of Egypt here with the Red Sea. The Egyptians are getting ready to kill us all. There's, we can drown in the ocean or we can be butchered by the Egyptians. God's forgotten us, but he hadn't forgotten. And God worked a great miracle of deliverance. So fast and pray that God would provide a deliverance, a deliverance you cannot foresee. 
because he is a God who remembers the forgotten. Others may forget about you, but God never does. He who answered Joshua at Gilgal. Here they had this, this walled city, and uh, it's their first city that they came to after crossing the Jordan River and coming into their inheritance. And maybe you're just beginning to, to enter into a, a, a time of great fruitfulness and, and victory with God, and you've come to a Jericho. And your common sense tells you, well, I need to, to um, attack the walls, lay siege to it, and, and build uh, machines that can hurl rocks against these walls and knock them down. But, but Joshua did none of that because God told him to do something that appeared utterly foolish. He had the people, the armies, walk around the city. Once a day. Then the last day, they walk around it several times and they blow the shofars and the walls just fall down. That is not a, uh, a recommended strategy for laying siege to a city. But if we're going to walk in victory and in a place of fruitfulness, we must learn to do things God's way. And they are counterintuitive. His ways are not our ways. His ways are utterly illogical compared to how we're used to doing things, but we must learn to do things in a different way. And uh, God hears the teruah, the blast of the shofar. You know, in the hands of Joshua, in obedience to God, that shofar and the air rushing through it became, it became a nuclear weapon against the walls of Jericho. The air blowing through the shofar is a picture of God's spirit, of us walking in the spirit, of, a God, of us engaging in spiritual things. And spiritual things can accomplish mighty wonders in this world. But number four, a part of our fast should be thinking about how when all the enemies around us, instead of us attacking the walled city, now the enemy's attacking us, it's surrounding us. But we're doing the thing, just doing the small sacrifice God's given us to do, going about business and doing the thing that God has put at hand. And then God sends a great thunder. Instead of Joshua blowing a shofar or Samuel blowing a shofar this time, God makes the noise. God drives away the enemy. This seems even a more foolish approach than Joshua's. Because this time, Samuel's not even blowing a shofar. He's allowing God simply to do everything while Samuel focuses on doing the sacrifice at the altar. Just tending the altar, living his life, doing what God has asked him to do. Letting God take care of the rest. He's a God who hears our cries. And then there's the showdown with the priest of Baal. Sometimes we feel like we're completely outnumbered and the, the servants of darkness the, and our culture, which is so dark, is, is winning. And here is Elijah, one man, standing for God, surrounded by all these hundreds of priests of Baal, serving Baal and serving uh, the, the wicked um, Jezebel. But God heard Elijah's prayer. He prayed. 
He simply prayed. And God did a great thing. Because God's a God who hears prayer. And I think we've all felt like Jonah. We're in a constricted place where there's simply no exit. We have come to the day of death and there's no way out. There's just simply no good ending to this. And you may even be like Jonah thinking, well, I'm getting what I deserve. I have rebelled against God. He said, go, go one direction and I fled the other and here I am. There's nothing God can do with me now. I'm done for. And yet, he's a God who answers in a time of trouble. Because in the belly of that fish, Jonah prayed a beautiful prayer. And um, God heard that prayer. He repented. And God, once again, did a wonder. And uh, God brought Jonah to his goal. And Jonah accomplished something great. This is a wonderful guide to fasting. Because sometimes when we fast, we don't know what to pray. So may I suggest that uh, if you choose to, this, this might provide a great roadmap for you. Not only for the 10th of Tevet, which comes up uh, on this Wednesday, but for any time you fast, for whatever it is you need. Uh, this is a, a very wise and ancient guide for how to fast. I skipped a passage back here because after Zechariah lists these four fast days, he goes on to say this. And the word of Adonai of hosts came to me saying, thus says Adonai of hosts, the fast of the fourth, the fast of the month, and the fast of the fifth, the seventh, and the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love truth and peace. So these fast days are temporary. These four fast days where we commemorate great destruction because of sin. And as we see destruction coming in our world today because the people of God have sinned, they have drifted from God. There is a day coming when not only will we turn back to God, But the light of our lives will change this world and the light of Messiah will come and his kingdom will be established and these fasts will be turned to feasts. And uh, what a day of, of joy and gladness that is going to be. So there's always a happy ending. There's always a happy ending. And all six of these events we just looked at uh, as a guide for fasting, they all have a happy ending a victorious outcome. God hears our cries. God will hear. And if we truly fast with the right intention of submitting ourselves completely to God, of being faithful to him and trusting him for the outcome, we will be satisfied with what he does and we'll rejoice. So let's close in prayer. Our Father and King, we thank you so much. We thank you for the feast days you give us, but also for the fast Because we are in a war zone. We were born into a war zone. But we know that a day is coming when this war, this 6,000-year-long war, will eventually come to an end. And it will end in a victory of light over darkness, of righteousness over sin, with Messiah ruling and reigning on his throne in Jerusalem. 
and the nations will come to you. And we know that the gates to your city will never be shut, for there's no night there. So, Father, thank you for how thorough and wonderful your salvation is that you have provided us through Messiah. In the meantime, this is still a war zone, and we are called to fight. But our weapons are not physical. Our weapons are spiritual. So help us to walk in your spirit and wield our spiritual weapon, the sword of the spirit, the word of God, to do it skillfully and effectively and faithfully. And we leave the outcome in your hands. And we praise you and thank you that you are our great God and you've provided us with a great salvation through Yeshua, our Savior, Messiah, in whose name we pray. Amen.